0: Good morning. It's Sunday the 28th of April 2019 and I'm Georgina Godwin. Today on Sunday Brunch.
1: Perhaps if Russia did remember that armies are made up of individual human beings, there would be greater respect for the living individual in Russian society today.
0: Stephen D. takes us on a tour of Berlin's Soviet War Memorial as we consider the different ways we interpret public monuments. Plus...
2: There's an interesting line in the play near the end where Bill Clinton, John Lithgow says, I've been erased like I never existed. And you can't help but feel that Lucas Nath's argument is, yes, but Hillary wasn't given a chance to exist.
0: Matt Wolfe, theater critic at the New York Times, reviews the new play, Hillary and Clinton, starring Laurie Metcalfe and John Lithgow. And Monocle's Ben Rylan examines the complexities behind efforts to restore Notre Dame to its former glory. Our Sunday book club continues with author Mo Gordat and his book, Solve for Happy. And Vincent McAvenney takes us through the weekend newspapers. So pour yourself a coffee. It's time for Sunday brunch. Now, our flat whites have just arrived, courtesy of the Monocle Cafe and our hard-working researcher, Helena Chirite. Uh, joining me in the studio is Vincent McAveney of Euronews. Good
3: morning. Good morning. Don't forget the buns as well. The buns Delicious are rather buns. nice. In fact, I
0: can tell yeah. you're actually halfway through yours. Oh, yeah, am, Perhaps yeah. you'd like to finish your mouthful before we look at the papers. <laughs> Never
3: eaten broadcast, sorry. <laughs>
0: um, Vinny, actually, on to very serious news to start, because you've just spent uh, the last few days in Ireland and Northern Ireland just after these uh, the appalling murder. Of Lyra McKee, tell us first of all just what was the mood there?
3: It was a very somber mood in Derry, uh, Derry, London, Derry. Um, it's a it's it's the fourth biggest city in in Ireland and Northern Ireland. Uh, it's in the right at the top of Ireland. And it is a funny city because it is a city divided by sectarian geography. Um, you have the River Liffey going through it. And on one side, you have a largely unionist uh, population. And on one side, you have uh, the um, the Catholic uh, Republican pop- uh, population. And in the past 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, they've literally and figuratively be- built, tried to build bridges between the two communities. So there's a bridge that goes between the two, a pedestrian bridge called the Peace Bridge, built with eu funds and things and they've tried lots of cross-party support but it was the scene of some of the bloodiest times of the troubles which went on for decades that's where bloody sunday happened where a number of people in the Bogside area were killed by british troops and there are still court cases going on regarding that at the moment so it's an area that has really seen the brunt of the troubles but there was widespread this week condemnation from all the sides all the political leaders across these aisles of what happened to Lyra mckee because she was a 29 year old journalist she had recently moved to londonderry to be with her partner sarah and she did uh she went out to cover some protests to do with the easter rising that's when obviously the irish free state was it was created um over a century ago and there was some uh some sort of uh, civil disturbance in a catholic area Uh, Republican area of the city. And Lyra did what you and I and every journalist is actually taught to do in those situations, to stand near a police vehicle, to be in sight of police officers. And police vehicles, particularly in Northern Ireland, are heavily um, shielded, more so than a normal car is. So that if something happens, you're probably protected behind it. But sadly, someone in the crowd, who police are saying now they think is a teenager, um, uh, shot a gun indiscriminately from around a corner wall, and she She was slain on the street uh, and it really has caused a real shock in Northern Ireland because she was a well-known and well-loved journalist. She was apolitical, her personal beliefs. She did a fantastic TED talk where she talks about them in her writing. You can see, you know, she is of that new generation. She was a child of the peace process. She was a child when the Good Friday agreement was signed and there was a promise of a hopeful, bright future for young women like her. And if you look through... Everything that she wrote, you know, she was all about bringing communities together, about non discrimination, about going forward into that. And for her to be killed, it really did have a tragic air in in Northern Ireland. Mm.
0: Uh, What are the papers saying about it this week? Well,
3: I mean, what the papers are saying is there's a big interview in the Sunday Times with the group who were responsible called the New IRA. Now, they apologized to lira's friends and family. That apology did not go down well, obviously, uh, beyond, you know, the fact that they admitted killing her. It's the fact that they actually described in the apology that, you know, Lyra was standing next to enemy combatants and because she was near the enemy. Now, the police service of Northern Ireland, uh, you know, that's in the views of the new IRA, even though there is now much more Catholic representation in it, they still believe it to be part of the British state. And so people were very angry at their apology statement. But The new IRA is saying in this interview that they won't stop and that Brexit has been a really big uh, draw for them to get young people into it and, and what i found that was really interesting was so i was in derry and then i was down in belfast where the funeral was held and there was a key moment in the funeral where the father giving the sermon you know this funeral was attended by theresa may the british prime minister leo radka the irish t their prime minister michael d higgins their president and then the leaders of the dup the leaders of Sinn fein jeremy corbyn was there all of the british political leaders from across the uk were really there And what you've got to remember is the Northern Irish Assembly, which is the parliament in the country, was a key part uh, of the withdrawal uh, of the Good Friday Agreement. Having that power sharing, people on both sides of that divide, knowing that they were being represented and that they were making laws locally. That has been collapsed for over two years. It is the longest time a part of Europe has not had a government in record. So what people said to me, and and, and the priest was so interesting because he called out all those political leaders saying, why in God's name does it take the death of a 29 year old for you to all be here? Uh, You know, finally sitting side by side. And there was a huge round of applause that was outside where I was broadcasting of thousands and then in the church. And then there's everyone in the church stood up to the point where it was embarrassing for the political leaders because they all sat there and eventually they had to stand up and clap. But they looked, you know, pretty mm-hmm. awkward about it all. But what, what I had from people I talked to in Derry is they said simply, it's very easy because in areas like Derry, where there is economic deprivation, if you're a young person and this bright future that you were promised isn't coming true, you haven't got a job you haven't got anything to work and live for and the neighbourhoods that you walk around still on the ends of the terraces have murals celebrating IRA fighters uh, and you know that kind of imagery and it's very easy for someone to glamorise it to you and make you think this is a romantic nostalgic cause to get involved with so very difficult situation that I don't think Brexit is the key driver of it by far I think it's a lot about the collapse of the assembly which was happened before you know kind of the, the brexit issues with northern are rising but it is going to be a very difficult few months and i think a tense few months because in july you have the protestant marching season and bonfires and i think that that especially with the kind of still the vacuum of what we, what's happening with brexit that could be a very difficult period a very bloody period again
0: yeah, absolutely have uh, any time for a uh, look at just one more story let's look at um uh, is
3: yeah this is a warning from security chiefs in the telegraph this morning that uh, basically now that um Now that so-called Islamic State isn't uh, preoccupied trying to build a state now that they've lost that and many of them have tried to slip out the country, some have done successfully, they are just turning their attention uh, back to hitting Western targets, doing the, the big spectacular, as it used to be called. So, obviously last week in Sri Lanka, both churches and Western hotels, five-star hotels were targeted and they think that now this is going to be the case, that we're going to see a continuation of this. Obviously, we had this back in the early 2000s with the Bali bombing uh, and they're sort of saying that places in um, India, the Maldives, East Africa, uh, resorts in Kenya and Tanzania, particularly vulnerable and that now this will become the focus of these networks which have gone out with more training than they had before. That is a, a key part of what they were doing when they were in Syria was learning techniques, learning bomb making, Uh, and so this is uh, possibly part of the uh, new normal, sadly.
0: Mm. Uh, And of course, lots and lots of papers looking back over over the tragic events in Sri Lanka. Thank you very much, Vinny. He'll be back a little bit later on to look at the cultural pages of the papers. This is Sunday Brunch. Stay tuned.
4: Stay one step ahead of the breaking news. People are saying, look, enough is enough. The middle class is getting squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. The rich are getting richer. And uh, they're saying, look, this is not a fair game. Here, industry-leading insights from our experts. When tech companies have problems, they can go south very quickly. BlackBerry, Nokia, nowhere near the companies they used to be. But both
0: were invincible. Nokia boasted that they were one of the first companies on the planet to sell 1 billion of their products.
4: and catch up with Monocle's bureau around the world every weekday at noon London time keep your appointment with the briefing on Monocle 24
0: Monuments are an essential part of any city, but in Berlin they carry extra complexity. Such is the case at the city's Soviet war memorial, the scale of which belies a deeper and much more tangled tale, as the Russian analyst Stephen Dial explains.
1: The Brandenburg Gate and the Reichstag, situated in the heart of Berlin, are the most iconic symbols of the city. Stroll just a few metres into the Tiergarten from the Brandenburg Gate. And you come to a symbol which reminds visitors of the darkest period in Berlin's history, the Soviet War Memorial. Soviet forces were the first Allied troops to reach the German capital as the Second World War in Europe came towards its end. And in the struggle which ensued, an estimated 80,000 Soviet soldiers died in Berlin before Germany surrendered. The Allies had already agreed a plan to divide control of both Germany and its capital at the end of the war and where the Soviet war memorial stands was inside the British sector. But citing the 2,000 Soviet soldiers who were buried on that spot, the Soviet authorities asked that they be allowed to place their memorial there, and the British agreed. As the Cold War developed, the former allies treated the local populations of their sectors of Berlin very differently. The Americans, the French and the British oversaw the rapid rebuilding of their sectors of West Berlin whereas in East Berlin, the Soviet sector, virtually only the road leading eastwards from the Brandenburg Gate, Unter den Linden, and Alexanderplatz, where it ends, was smartened up. These were the showpiece of Eastern Europe for Western tourists, who rarely ventured further. But you didn't have to go far into the back streets, as I often did in the 1980s, to see the run-down buildings and the wartime bullet holes in the walls, which residents were forbidden from patching up. This was the Soviet Union's way of reminding the German people of the suffering caused to their country by the Nazi invasion. And the Soviet War Memorial, permanently guarded by Soviet soldiers, was a significant reminder in West Berlin. Today, in a united Berlin, few Western visitors, especially the younger generation, will give much thought to the controversial sighting of the Soviet War Memorial in West Berlin. Fewer still will go to Treptow Park in the southeast of the city to see the Soviet war cemetery, with its 12 metre high statue of a Soviet soldier holding a German child and crushing underfoot the Nazi swastika. For many Russians who visit Berlin, these sites are still sacred places, the burial grounds of grandfathers and great uncles who died for the sake of the motherland. Western tourists, on the other hand, may be taken aback by the monumental nature of these memorials, typical as they are of the sculptures of socialist realism. More significant still is what these memorials say about the way in which those who die in war are remembered in Russian and Western cultures. Many Western tourists would be shocked if they realised that the Soviet memorial in the Tiergarten is actually a mass grave where 2,000 soldiers are buried. Because to a Westerner, neither the Memorial nor Treptow Park look like war cemeteries. With the emphasis in the Soviet Union, and to a large extent in modern-day Russia, being on the collective and not the individual, mass graves in wartime were considered normal. It is normal in the West, however, to remember that armies are made up of individual citizens. Nowhere is this illustrated better than across northern France and Belgium, where, in the First World War, Grim battles took place which saw the front line move just a few metres at the cost of thousands of lives. Right across this region you can find cemeteries, large and small, each one displaying individual crosses or headstones bearing details of the soldier buried beneath. Earlier this year I visited the cemetery at Notre-Dame de Lorette, the largest French military cemetery in the world. Not only are there more than 40,000 crosses and headstones there, But on a memorial unveiled in 2014 to mark the centenary of the start of the First World War, the names are listed of 580,000, more than half a million, soldiers of all nations who died on the battlefields of Flanders and Artois. Such a memorial is unthinkable in Russia. Perhaps if Russia did remember that armies are made up of individual human beings, there would be greater respect for the living individual in Russian society today. Even after the collapse of communism, too often the citizen can feel crushed by the weight of the state. Crushed, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn wrote, for the good of the cause. For Monaco, I'm Stephen Diel.
0: Thank you very much to Stephen. We'll take a look at the weekend's culture pages in the newspapers soon, but first, the critical and commercial success of Hamilton was always likely to create a wider space on Broadway for high-concept political drama. Now Lucas Nuff's Hillary and Clinton is earning plaudits at New York City's Golden Theatre. Starring Laurie Metcalfe and John Lithgow as Hillary and Bill Clinton, it's a bleak comedy rooted in Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign of 2008 and her dilemma about deploying her charming but distracting husband as a campaigner. Monocle's Andrew Muller spoke to Matt Wolfe, theatre critic for the New York Times International Edition, and asked why the play is set in 2008 rather than the more recent election of 2016.
2: Yes, the setting is New Hampshire Hotel Room in 2008, where Hillary is confronting one of her own, in other words, another Democrat, he who isn't particularly named in the play, but it's obviously Barack Obama. But as the play goes on and the pronouns take over, and there are no names, it's sort of he, him, It, it is suggested that we can make the connection between the elision between then and more recently, when, of course, Obama is replaced by Donald Trump. But the play, in a sense, I think, is a portrait of a woman trying to secure her place. And it doesn't—well, I mean, it matters to some extent, because Donald Trump matters. But it's not that relevant to the writing of the play who the opposition is. The fact is that there is opposition, and she is, in the context of the play, uh, seen as doomed to failure, it's a very bleak play.
4: So, is, is it specifically and obviously about Hillary and Bill Clinton, or are they? Is the intent to draw more universal characters out of
2: their dynamic? Exactly the latter. And the play, first of all, is very short. It's about 75, 80 minutes. And I would say a good 10 minutes of that, which is about an eighth of the play, is devoted to the brilliant Laurie Metcalf, who is sensational, uh, speaking directly to the audience in these rather tortured, and I don't mean that negatively, that they're meant to be tortured, uh, sort of monologues about the multiverse and universes we inhabit, and this is a Hillary, but there might be other Hillary's in other universes. And I think what Lucas Nath wants us to realize is that her dilemma, her plight, yes, happened to her, but it happens to women all the time in positions of power who just cannot get there. I think it's a portrait of trying and fundamentally losing for whatever reason. So, so
4: is it possible then that this script, which as I understand it was written in the first instance after her 2008 yeah. failure, actually acquired greater resonance because she failed again and at the next level up in 2016 and to a much more obviously absurd character?
2: Exactly right. And as I gather, uh, Scott Rudin, the brilliant producer who is doing single-handedly all he can to sort of elevate the New York theater in all sorts of ways, and this play is just one example of several, Uh, Apparently, he went back to Lucas Nathan and said, you know, whatever you wrote way back then, time has moved on. Let's just go back and re-sort of calibrate what you had. Now, I have not compared script A with script B, but I have a feeling that what's now is not what was then. And originally, when the play was first produced, the actress playing Hillary Clinton, Laurie Metcalf, nothing to do with it then, was an African-American actress uh, called Sherilyn Bruce. So, clearly, the intention is not... To play the verisimilitude game. Oh, she looks a lot like Hillary Clinton. No, she doesn't. So the so idea is L- to anatomize.
4: McCart and John Lithgow don't appear in costume doing
2: the affectations of Bill
4: and Hillary's no, voices or anything. No,
2: I mean, no. I mean, Laurie Metcalf just, I mean, physically sort of vaguely suggests Hillary Clinton, but it, it's not about posturing and it's not about fake accents. It's none of that. At a time on Broadway, by the way, when you can see The Cher Show, which was a musical <laughs> about Guess Who Cher, or a musical about the temptations, all of which are exercises in facsimiles. This is not that. This really is a dissection of a state of mind. And it's very, very bleak. And, you know, the, the, New York audience, playgoing audience, is fundamentally a liberal collective. And I think for all of us there on Wednesday afternoon, just a couple of days ago, it felt like a sort of necessary catharsis, except that it isn't all that cathartic, because you come away thinking, well, what can this woman do? Where does she go now? Or women like her?
4: I mean Just, just finally, then, are we witnessing at this point now that it seems fairly clear that Hillary Clinton realizes that her time is up? And it also seems fairly clear that the the risk of tempting fate that Chelsea Clinton has thought better of this whole seeking elected office thing, that we're witnessing the Clintons now going the way of the Kennedys. They're being absorbed into American mythology.
2: Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. But I think at a great sense of price, there's an interesting line in the play near the end where Bill Clinton, John Lithgow says, I've been erased like I never existed. And you can't help but feel that Lucas Nath's argument is, yes, but Hillary wasn't given a chance to exist.
0: And that was Matt Wolfe from the New York Times speaking to Monocle's Andrew Muller. The play Hillary and Clinton is on at the New York Golden Theatre now. Right, the time here in London is 10.21, that's 11.21 in Zurich. You're listening to Sunday Brunch. I'm joined once again by Vincent McAvini from Euronews. We're looking at what's happening in the cultural pages of the weekend papers and some of the lighter stories. Now, one we didn't quite get to in our last segment was Donald Trump and his visits to London and what he wants to be on the agenda.
3: Yeah, that's right. So Donald Trump is getting his state visit to London this year and the government have very tactically timed it with the D-Day celebration so they can say it's part of that greatest ally during the war and use that as cover. Um, and obviously last time he didn't get uh, the full, uh, he got as close as possible to a state visit, but this time he basically has made clear he wants what Xi Jinping got. So gold carriage up the Mall, going into Downing Street. It is going to be a security nightmare uh, for, the, um, for the British police. Uh, but he's also arranging... Uh, a dinner with some of his favourites uh, in Britain. So, this ex- expectation that uh, invited round will be Boris Johnson and Nigel Farage. So, obviously, Donald Trump has a relationship with Nigel Farage and Behind the scenes, it felt like in his last visit, Nigel Farage was advising Donald Trump because Donald Trump made several uh, awkward interventions for Theresa May, saying that he thought, I think three times in total, he said he thought whilst he was here, it was only like a two day visit, that Boris Johnson would make a great prime minister. And of course, that is the high, you know, he finds Theresa May difficult. We know from leaks that he thinks that she's like a schoolmistress, doesn't have much time for her like many other women. And so he very much thinks that um, Boris Johnson is his kind of man. I can. Guess why, given their histories?
0: Absolutely. Uh, Let's have a look at transport now. Of course, uh, the whole um, uh, climate message has been very much on the agenda. And this is affecting the way that future transport is going to work.
3: Yeah, that's right. Many people, after the kind of... um extinction rebellion protests have been talking about and thinking about, uh, you know, their patterns of travel and things. And there was a fantastic Sir David Attenborough documentary the other day talking about what we can all do. And and of course, one of the biggest things is is flying and more people are thinking about taking trains. The Eurostar is rapidly expanding its services. So you can now go all the way to Amsterdam on the Eurostar. You can go down to Marseille to the south of France. You know, obviously takes quite a few hours more. Uh, But one of the things having a resurgence is the sleeper train And this is um, about the Caledonian sleeper. So this is the one that goes from London, Euston, up to Scotland. And at various times in the past 20 to 30 years, it's been under threat of uh, of being abolished. Uh, And that is the way that sleeper trains are going across Europe. So in this article in The Observer, it talks about how Germany is getting rid of them. uh, France is getting rid of them as well but they've made a very different choice in the UK where they've spent uh, over, I think it's £150 million entirely renovating the fleet, 75 new carriages. And it's going kind to, of, they think that people are more interested in train travel for one, but also the kind of experience of it. So what they've done, they've ha- talked about how actually it used to be quite gross, the current carriages. I've, I've been on one before and they're not particularly nice. Um, and there's some horror stories here about stuff happening, having to share rooms with other people and stuff. But the new train will be, you'll have your own cabin, There'll be the kind of best of Scottish food and whiskey served. It's going to be a real kind of tourist experience to try and get people who want to go up and do shooting and fishing and, or and explore Scotland and things to, to go up on it. So in this climate, it's quite savvy because the Scottish government has put the money into this and they've got a big advertising campaign coming that you can leave Euston, wake up going over the Forth Bridge and be up in Fort William or wherever. And it's, so this is maybe the way that uh, train journeys are going to go. There'll be a resurgence in giving train customers a good experience to get them off flights because, mm. to be honest, flying these days is pretty thankless, isn't it? I mean, even British yeah. Airways, you can't get a cup of tea. So, yeah.
0: <laughs> I have to say, I have actually done that sleeper journey, and it was wonderful.
3: Just yeah. Just really, Yeah, really the views lovely. are lovely. The carriages haven't yeah. been so nice. So this is uh, a plan to kind of fix that.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, to New York, where this amazing woman, who it's basically turned out to be a con artist, yeah. uh, but has been doing it extremely well. I mean,
3: props to her. Like, she, <laughs> you know, she lands in New York. Her name is Anna Sorkin. She was 28, and she She created this identity called Anna Delvey and she managed to swindle millions. Uh, She claimed uh, she claimed millions out of like investors and business people because she was talking about setting up a kind of hotel and club and art gallery installation. And this is a piece in the Telegraph uh, about what's happening now, though, because there's, there's a great Vanity Fair article about all that she went through, because someone working for Vanity Fair was swindled by her, did a trip with her to Morocco, and then got lumped with the bill. This is what this girl kept doing. She was living in luxury hotels, charging up money, and then disappearing. And she was swindling all kinds... She got into the highest stratas of New York society. But what is happening now, and I think this is so interesting, is that whenever these stories happen... You, like this is being adapted there's a war now to get the adaptation out for tv first so there's a hbo version that lena dunham's producing but at the same time netflix has got shonda rhimes who they've just spent a hundred million luring from abc where she made shows like Grey's anatomy this is going to be her first netflix project doing a kind of true crime story and it's this whole pattern of um you know like the other day when the college tutor story the, the felicity huffman laurie loffman thing came out it was just like well, I know I'm going to see a series of this in about 18 months <laughs> and an excellent one at the moment as well. The Theranos, the the woman who um, turned, uh, st- took billions from investors to do this blood company and the whole thing was false. And that is being adapted. There's been a HBO documentary, but it's being adapted by Jennifer Lawrence into a film. And it's, it seems that like the new thing, rather than it being kind of true killing stories or true murder, is like, is this <laughs> a rogue girl... Like criminals and the battle that ensues for trying to get the show out first and these extraordinary stories. Uh, and story. part of her story was kind of portraying this super clav- like glamorous life on Instagram and that's what convinced lots of people that she was the real deal, a, a kind of German millionaire.
0: Yeah, and as we say she did it extremely well.
3: Yeah, props to her. Uh,
0: Vincent, thank you very much indeed. That's Vincent McAvigny from Euronews. Now still to come on Sunday Brunch we'll hear from an archaeologist on why we ought to rethink the notion of authenticity when it comes to restoring historical monuments such as notre dame but first a look at the weather if you can't quite face the working week ahead may we suggest a few days in sunny la drop into our monocle shop and bureau and platform in the design quarter of culver city while you're there even if it's cloudy you'll find a warm welcome if skiing and throwing snowballs is more your style, perhaps you'd like to consider the Dolomites on the border of South Tyrol, where it's a bitter minus eight degrees today. And spare a thought for Mozambique, where Cyclone Kenneth is wreaking havoc before the country's fully recovered from Cyclone Idai, which caused the death of at least a thousand people back in March. And here in London, it's a mild 11 degrees, which is good news for our marathon runners today. This is Sunday Brunch. Stay tuned.
4: Funny how many people get these things wrong. I go into a lot of jazz clubs
3: and I go, what made you build it like this? These days, everyone's got an opinion about design. Join us on our journey to cut through the noise. We sit down with the design greats. It's just bloody-minded inquisitiveness, really. And have you covered on everything from architecture to product design and fonts to fashion? There's so many collections being designed, actually there may is a lifespan on a designer's role at the helm of a brand. And of course we're at all the key events in the design calendar, with in-depth reports from our global network of correspondents.
0: Two and a half hours by train from Amsterdam lies the historic city of Maastricht, which every year hosts the fabulous Tefer Fair,
3: Perhaps intuitively, Monocle on Design is Monocle's weekly design show. Tune in every Tuesday at 1900 London time or download the podcast on iTunes or Spotify.
0: It's 10.30 here in London. You're listening to Sunday brunch with me, Georgina Godwin. Now, Amanda Heinemann has had an impressive 33-year-long career that's seen her travel the world. She's been overseas for 10 years and general manager of the Mandarin Oriental Bangkok for five years. She joined the Mandarin Oriental initially in Hong Kong before going on to work in Washington, D.C. and, as we say, Bangkok. Well, in June 2018, she arrived at the uh, 5AA Star 181-bedroom Mandarin Oriental High park in london but two days after she arrived a catastrophic event took place and really it's uh it's informed the way that that the hotel has gone forward from there so amanda who is uh to give you your your proper title the general manager and vice president operations of the mandarin oriental hyde park london welcome thank you very much <laughs> now you had this exciting new job. You were relocating back to London. This fabulous hotel, which had been going in, in this country for, for, for generations, really, uh, just had this fantastic refurb. You're there to open it. What happens?
5: Um well, obviously, it was it was a terrible shock on the day. But the, um, it happened about 3.50 in the afternoon. And the great thing was that all of the guests and colleagues and contractors were evacuated in less than four minutes. London Fire Brigade were there in less than six minutes. Um, so our priority was really to take care of everybody, get the guests relocated, um, and of course, get the colleagues safely home. Um, so from that point of view, I think it was very well managed. Mm. And then, of course, our
0: priority was then to um, assess the damage and get back to business as soon as we could. Yeah. Well, and here you have this hotel, which has just been beautifully redone. I mean, there's been a lot of expense going in to, to, to really give the, the grand old lady a, a facelift. Uh, then the, the, the fire or the incident happens. Um, but you've got all, this, all these members of staff. What do you do with them while, while you have to refurb the hotel once again?
5: Well, the good thing actually was that although it looked very dramatic with the smoke on the roof, the incident was actually um, confined to an interior courtyard, um, which of course nobody can see the courtyards in the middle of the hotel, um, but actually in that courtyard there was all the mechanical and electrical equipment, so like the air conditioning and the kitchen vents and the chillers, so that's really what led to the closure for so long. Um, The great thing was that of course that we had full insurance cover, which meant that all 600 employees we call them our colleagues were going to be paid in full throughout the closure and that included commissions bonuses and tips so as you say i suddenly realized i had 600 people on my hands um, and i have to say that um people were incredibly kind to us after the incident. I mean, people are very competitive in business. But I have to say the other hotels and businesses in Knightsbridge rushed out um, to offer food and water and sustenance and offer care to us. And, you know, I was in the street at three in the morning and the Salvation Army came up to me and put their arm around me and said, are you okay, dear? So I think we were very humbled by people's kindness. Um, And then I did think, goodness me, what are we going to do? And of course, Given the fact everybody was paid, I I knew the colleagues were were going to get bored very quickly. Because when you work in a hotel, it's a bit like being on stage in front of the guests. You know, if you're in dinner by Heston or in reception. So I I have had experience in other hotels of um, giving back to the community to keep people busy. And actually, you know, doing charity work. Because good things often come of that. But the irony was, it was actually very difficult to organise. Because having 600 people and saying, we want to do charity work... Well, you can't really do that in London anymore because charities have turned the whole giving back model on its head and you you kind of have to pay for the privilege. So it was 50 quid per person per day to pick up rubbish out of the Thames and it was £75 per person per day to pick up plastic out of Canary Wharf. And then when I said to some charities, um, I've got managers who could come and be mentors for your staff, they said, that's lovely. That costs £3,000 for the training course. So I was like, oh, my goodness. But, but the good thing was we'd had this relationship with Felix, which is the charity that collects unwanted food um, from restaurants and hotels and shops. And our restaurant, Dinner by Heston, was already giving food back. So we signed up about 24 drivers and co-pilots. So they were scuttling all over London, collecting unwanted food. And then I was introduced to the Mayor's Fund, and they've got an initiative called Kitchen Social, which addresses malnutrition during the school holidays. And that's because children aren't getting a meal during the school holiday. So our chefs went to do that. And then there is the Passage, which is the homeless drop-in centre in Westminster. And actually, you know, the homeless people take their belongings there to be stored and their clothes to be laundered. And there's an initiative to take people from homelessness into the workplace. So we were like teaching barista skills and restaurant skills but that had about 60 people busy and I was like, all right, okay, what are we going to do next? And I was in South Ken one day and I literally saw an Oxfam shop which had a paper notice in the door saying help wanted and everybody's got an Oxfam shop in their local neighbourhood, right? So I think we ended up running almost 60 Oxfam shops over the summer because of course their own volunteers wanted to go on holiday. So we actually had about 400 colleagues because of course, you know, engineering and finance and security were still working. So I said, right, if everybody does eight hours a week times 400 people, People times ten weeks—that's thirty-two thousand hours. Right? We're going to have a target of forty thousand hours of community work, which we achieved Amazing. before we reopened the restaurants in December. Yeah,
0: yeah, And I imagine that that really created some interesting dynamics between staff members because you had people from different departments, different levels of senor- sen- seniority, working with each other.
5: Absolutely. I mean, it was it was voluntary, but the vast majority of people you know, I think we would all like to give back, but we don't normally have time on our hands. So as you say, people from different departments, different age groups, different levels of seniority, you know, blooming hard work at that Felix, you know, sorting out food, and likewise ox an Oxfam. But there was a lot of fun. And we've got a, an app um, in the hotel, which is like our intranet, and people posted photos all the time. And I think people found it humbling to see the lives that other people live. But I think, The vast majority of people also found it very, very uplifting. And, you know, they forged relationships in the hotel that I think has made us much more um, united and much stronger for the reopening Mm -hmm. that people, you know, have got much um closer relationships and have worked together through such a challenging situation
0: absolutely i wanted to talk to you a little bit about luxury and 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 what what makes a luxury hotel because it's not just about cost i mean you can you can charge a huge amount of money and not particularly give a luxurious feel and so i just wondered how how luxury hospitality works really what is it that you're you're giving to 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 the consumer that makes them feel this really is something special
5: I, you know, I, I say all the time that our guests have a choice. Um, they don't have to stay with us. They can stay, you know, at any hotel they want. Um, and I think, you know, there are things that are very, very important for different guests, whether it's location, obviously, we're physically on Hyde Park in the middle of Knightsbridge. I think the heritage of our hotel is unique. But I think fundamentally, um, you know, for all the beautiful spas and luxury suites and um, fantastic restaurants, it's about the way we make the guests feel um and you know i think traditionally maybe hotels have had a reputation for being a bit snobby and a bit arrogant and i said when we opened in december we were going to kill the guests with kindness they all (laughs) looked at me in shock but i said you know we're going to be on those stairs and we're going to be welcoming people back we've got one chance to get it right so if it's in our body language in our eyes in our hearts we've got to make people feel welcome now of course you know whether you're coming for dinner or you've flown halfway across the world you know guests are upset of course we're all stressed traveling isn't easy these days And I just said, you know, it's our job to put the guests in a good place. And if they are angry and upset when they arrive, you know, we've got to create an environment where they feel reassured and cared for and that they can relax. And it it sounds a bit grandiose to say, but I think, you know, we're buying time and we're buying place because whether it's for work, you've got a job to do, or whether you've saved up to come for afternoon tea, whether you've saved up for your wedding anniversary, we've got to respect that, you know, guests are paying with their own money. And it's it's how we make them feel, you know, that creates the whole experience and memory that they're going to have.
0: Absolutely. Amanda, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Amanda Hyman is the general manager and vice president operations of the Mandarin Oriental Hyde Park in London, which is now once again fully open for business. The recent fire at Paris's Notre-Dame Cathedral was undoubtedly a global tragedy. But as France comes to terms with when and how rebuilding will take place, are we misjudging the value of perceived authenticity? Monocle's Ben Ryland reports.
1: This is a CBS News special report. I'm Jeff Glore in New York, and we are following an awful situation in Paris at this hour. The historic Notre-Dame Cathedral is burning. The when images of the collapsed. Notre Dame
6: Cathedral flames, engulfed by flames were broadcast booth. around the world last week, many found it difficult to contain their anguish at watching centuries of history reduced to ash. But the world has faced the devastating destruction of historical monuments and artefacts before. Claire Smith is a professor of archaeology at Flinders University in Australia.
7: In Western societies, we think it's authentic if we have the original materials. So we like to touch the thing that is old. And so the authenticity of the materials is really important. But for other cultures, that it's not so important. In Japan, they have a tradition in some World Heritage listed buildings that are continually under a process of continuous reconstruction. And Aboriginal cultures also have a philosophy of repainting paintings, rock paintings.
6: The way one approaches the process of restoration can differ greatly, depending on how one sees its core purpose. Some might see original materials and placement of objects as being key. But as PhD candidate Jordan Ralph explains, others value the spirit of a building's intent too.
8: It really varies across the world. Like So the way they do it in Europe, it's totally different to how we do it in Australia and or even how they do it in Asia or in South America. It's really different. But we've got a few different professionals who are kind of tasked with doing this which one is archaeologists like us so we work with what we call cultural heritage management so we're, we're kind of tasked with looking after these sites but then there's also heritage architects and we're kind of guided by different principles like set down by unesco and one of those is in australia we use the borough charter and what that tells us is that when we're conserving and trying to preserve or restore these sites is that we, we need to bear certain things in mind. Like one of them is the fabric of a place. Others is like the social, historical or scientific significance of the place. And when we're trying to make decisions about how we go about looking after these places, we need to bear those things in mind. And one of the things with the guidelines for looking after the Nara heritage site in japan is that those things we can kind of decide which ones are more or less important and then we're kind of guided by by that but we do it through research so we've got to take our time and just make sure we're doing it with respect to what is important about the site.
6: Much of our attachment to famous monuments stems from the meaning we attach to them. When people visit Notre Dame, for example, they're not just stepping inside a church, they're forming a connection with history that runs far deeper than politics or nationhood.
8: They're kind of transported into another world and it's that association with the deep past and
6: how we've got
8: to this point in time. So it's about thinking about our history
6: and just associating with that. When a structure that stood for generations is destroyed, it undoubtedly carries an emotional toll. But, as Claire suggests, it's important that we ask why we place such value in a building's perceived authenticity.
7: The historic centre of Warsaw was absolutely demolished as part of the Warsaw Uprising in the Second World War. So 85% of that was destroyed. And that was restored authentically following the war, so it was totally using the original building construction techniques and materials, and it was inscribed as a World Heritage Site in the end, not because it was, like most World Heritage Sites, built of primarily the original materials, but because it was built using those techniques. And there's something clever about that, about saying, because we can have really iconic buildings like Notre Dame or the Trafalgar Square Lines, iconic objects. And if they're destroyed, we can just rebuild them because the importance is about that thing being in that place and how we use that thing. We like to walk around the lines. They're emblemic. Notre Dame is an important place as part of an experience for many people. But when it's rebuilt, they'll go back and they'll still experience it a little bit differently. So it's the spirit and the use and the function of the thing that to me that's far more important that the original materials be untouched.
6: In 2015, 30 historical organisations around the world came together to issue a statement about the importance of understanding the past. It said, in part, that history nurtures personal identity in an intercultural world. History enables people to discover their own place in the stories of their families, communities and nation. The loss of large parts of Notre Dame is without doubt heart-wrenching. But it's not the first time that an adored historical monument has been lost, and it surely won't be the last. When tragedy strikes, people tend to be awfully good at picking up the pieces and rebuilding. We know this because history says so. For Monocle, I'm Ben Ryland.
0: Thank you, Ben. This is Sunday Brunch.
6: Or you can kiss me on a Wednesday, a Thursday, a Friday,
8: and Saturday is
7: best. But never, never on a Sunday, a Sunday, a Sunday, because that's my day of rest.
0: Finally today, it's time for Weekend Reads, our own little book club for those who prefer to spend their Sunday afternoon with a good page-turner. Today, we hear from Mohamed Mo Gordat, who is the former chief business officer for Google X, an entrepreneur and the author of the book Solve for Happy. He explains to us how it's possible to create an algorithm for happiness.
9: Soul for Happy was, you know, the content was developed together with my wonderful son, who was instinctively happy. He, he, you know, throughout his life, he just radiated positivity and happiness. I never, ever saw him from. And when, unfortunately, we lost Ali uh, due to a, um, a preventable human error. He, he was diagnosed with a very simple surgical operation, and the surgeon had five mistakes in a row, and very, very unlikely. Uh, and it took my son's life away. Two weeks before Ali died, he told his sister that he had a dream. In his dream, he he basically said, I was everywhere and part of everyone. And and when I woke up, it was so wonderful that I didn't want to go back to my physical form, basically. Mm. And somehow, I got up and assumed this as my target, assumed that this is the mission that I'm supposed to spend the rest of my life doing. And Ali had taught me everything I knew about happiness. So I summed it up in an engineer's way, in a in a very, very straightforward, direct way, with the objective of making Ali part of everyone, just by having everyone find happiness. Because honestly, if you live a life unhappy, you're not alive. And somehow, since the book came out, I tend to believe that the whole universe is conspiring to make that mission happen somehow. You know, it's been incredible, the number of positive reviews, the number of people that say that it changed their life, and how somehow the, the serendipities that get me to send messages to millions and millions of people. And, you know, we started with a mission that was to make 10 million people happy. We got there within eight weeks, believe it or not. Not just people watching videos, that's a that's a lie if you think about it. These are people that actually took charge. They started to invest in finding their happiness. And so we expanded the mission last November, uh, November 2017, actually. So we expanded the, the mission to a billion happy and a billion happy would completely change our world, a, a world that absolutely nothing needs nothing more than happiness.
0: So you approach this all from a very technical position because, of course, you were involved with Google X. Tell us just a, a little bit of your background as an engineer.
9: I'm a civil engineer originally, but I was fascinated by computer science my whole life. I wrote my first code at age eight and, and, you know, continued to write code probably until a few years ago. And, you know, I worked in th- many companies, but three major uh, organizations that changed the world, IBM, Microsoft and and Google. At Google, I started half of Google's operations worldwide. I was the head of emerging markets when we had no emerging markets. And then I moved to Google X, where we basically, it's the place where we innovate, where we make those breakthrough ideas. We used to call them, we still call them moonshots. And moonshots are, you know, attempts to solve major problems that face humanity through you know, radical uh, solutions and radical ideas. And and the idea I'm trying to use here is to tell people that the modern world has lied to you about happiness, that actually you're born happy, that happiness is your birthright, and that, you know, happiness is not as complicated as, uh, you know, spiritual talks or academics will talk to you about it. Happiness is just like fitness. If If you do the right things regularly enough, you will get there. But to make it clear. I, instead of using, um, you know, mystical talk, I use physics, I use mathematics, I use logic, I use sometimes astronomy, uh, you know, things that we can relate to and practical experiences that you can test yourself to understand what makes you happy or unhappy.
0: So what is happiness?
9: Great question. In, in Solve for Happy, I define happiness with an equation. I say your happiness is equal to or greater than the difference between the events of your life and your expectations of how life should behave. Now, that is very eye-opening, because we think that we should be happy when life is good to us and be unhappy if life is unfair to us. That's actually not true at all. Some of the happiest people around the world have very simple lives. You know, In Latin America, if you made enough to put food on the table for your children, the rest of the day is dancing. And, and you know, people really find that peace and calm contentment in them. This is what happiness is all about. It's hyper-mixed with fun, which is what I call the state of escape in Solve for Happy. The state of escape is when you're unable to find that peace, you start to replace it with modern world replacements of happiness. I call them ma- weapons of mass distraction. So so you go to a party or you jump out of an airplane just in an attempt to stop your brain from solving the happiness equation. And one, once you stop your brain from solving the happiness equation, you, re- you return to your... Default setting as a child, just because you're not thinking about the things that worry you, and once the fun is over, unhappiness sets in.
0: So there is an algorithm, really, for happiness. It
9: is hyper-predictable. You know, we are born happy. I know most of us have forgotten that. But as children, if you're given your basic needs for survival, you're happy. You know, you don't ask for an Xbox and you don't, you don't take a snap of your butt to put it on, on Snapchat, you know, to Instagram to, to find happiness. And, and so happiness is innate to us. It's, it's our default setting. It's our best mode of operation. You know, look at a child and you would realize what happens is a reason for unhappiness arises. You know, a diaper gets wet. The child is unhappy. It cries. And then you change the diaper. The, the child is back to happiness. Th- this is us. This is how we are. The challenges in the modern world, we end up adding so many reasons for unhappiness. I I call them the six and the seven, seven, six grand illusions and seven blind spots. Those blur our judgment of the reality of life and what events really are and what expectations should be. And in comparison of the wrong events to the wrong expectations, we solve the equation wrong every time. And so we end up unhappy all the time or most of the time for reasons that are unwarranted. And If you really, you know, bust the myth, bust the six grand illusions, fix the seven blind spots of our brain, most of the time you will find that there is a different way to handle, you know, a hurtful comment from a friend than locking yourself in a room and crying about it for three days when that's not going to change anything at all. And so from a businessman's mentality, it's almost like you're working on a deal or or a project and something goes wrong. It's expected. In life, it's expected that life is not always going to give you what you want. And what you do about it is what makes you happy or unhappy.
0: And so you say that we should embrace five ultimate truths.
9: Yeah, I embrace five ultimate truths. So one of the illusions, one of the six grand illusions I talk about is, as I call it the illusion of knowledge. One of the biggest myths of the modern world is that we actually know anything at all. Uh, you know, we, we value knowledge so much and of course you couldn't wake up in the morning and do anything unless you believe that what you're doing is based on truth. But the reality is, even in science, we keep discovering new things every day. And so the concept of truth is a little more elusive than we think it is. So I have developed my own grand truth. These are things that I have gone through life observing that are true almost every time. You know, change is real. Uh, you know, now is the only moment you will ever live. These are truths. Love is real, not the love that you see in Hollywood movies and pop songs. Unconditional love is real. And you put all of those five grand truths, ultimate truths. To, to me, they solve every problem. Uh, so understand this. Two opposite poles of a magnet attract. Has that ever upset you? Never. Why? Because you know it's true. If your finger was stuck between them, you don't curse life for it. You just say to yourself, come on, I I shouldn't have put my finger here, right? Your boss is annoying. It's a fact of life. This is what bosses are all about. (laughs) So, you know, why is that any different than two opposite poles of of a magnet attract? If we start to recognize the truth, our reaction to it is very, very different than our reaction to things that we hope should be different, but in reality are not. Change is real, death is real. I lost Ali. Now, you know, the first thing I did after losing him is I called my brother, who's a surgeon. I said, Khaled, does this actually happen? And he said, well, unfortunately, surgeons are humans. They make mistakes. When you make a mistake, you lose a deal. That's my business. hmm? When a surgeon makes a mistake, they lose a patient. And even though it doesn't happen that often, You know, if if it happens one in 10,000 cases, that's millions of people every year. And, you know, reality is no surgeon ever deliberately killed a patient. I mean, who wakes up in the morning and says, OK, I'm going to kill a young man today to destroy my career. So it's not like this surgeon wanted Ali to go. As a matter of fact, he panicked as much as I did. He tried his best to save him. And when you think of those truths, suddenly you realize something that I think is probably at the core of the unhappiness in the world today. You realize that Ali left us. I I had a choice to close my door and cry for the next 27 years of my life. I mean, if you had hugged him once, you wouldn't blame me, honestly. But it wouldn't bring him back. It wouldn't, right? I mean, the, the only choice I really had was maybe if I got up, wrote what he taught me and sent it to the world... That would be a good way to honor him. It still doesn't bring him back, unfortunately. Hmm? But it would definitely make today a much better day than the day when he left. So even though I still miss him every day, at least I'm able to put part of him in every human that reads this book, every human that watches a video, every human that listens to this uh, interview. And hopefully, as we do that, we start to deliver on what humanity really is all about which we forgot in the modern world. We forgot with the industrial revolution and the financial revolution and the consumerism that we live in today. We forgot why we're doing any of that. We forgot that we are supposed to go to work to have enough to find happiness and to have the compassion to make those around us happy. Remember? Remember 20, 30, 40 years ago when your neighbors actually mattered, when your friends were people that you really genuinely cared about for more reasons than just having likes on on social media? This is what humanity was always all about. We need to get back to this.
0: So, how much is your former career responsible for the ills and the unhappiness that we face? How much <laughs> is tech's fault?
9: There is no doubt that tech has completely revolutionized our life. You know, if you take any statistic uh, between the 1900s and today, humanity is better. Um, you know, life expectancy is better, our, um, you know, availability of food for uh, the whole planet is, is better, but it's not distributed well, and so on. But there was a point where I believe we started to fail in delivering the promise. So, you know, mobile phones were supposed to give you more time because of mobility. They also resulted in a bombardment of messages that could destroy your life. Social media was supposed to connect you with old friends. Now it's just really actually disconnecting you from real friends. It's a choice, however, because technology is just a double-edged sword. You you know, technology magnifies what we are as humans. You, You can walk at five miles an hour, or you can drive a car at 300 miles an hour. It just magnifies your ability to be mobile. And so is tech. I think what you see happening in our societies today is not because tech is making us worse. It's just magnifying how terrible we are. You know, that uh, narcissism that we're becoming, that egocentricity, that, you know, uh, constant separation and individualism, that constant debate. You know, it didn't start with tech. It started on TV. It started on on the news. I mean, I, I land in London and, oh, my God, the negativity of how many negative things are happening, even though it's a wonderful place. But that focus, that focus on how we look for the wrong things. This is basically the design of breaking the happiness equation. It's like if you're looking for things to be wrong, then events will always miss expectations. You'll always be unhappy. Add technology on on top of that and you go at 300 miles an hour. Add technology on top of that. And the future becomes very worrying. Because remember, every technology we've built so far was a technology that we managed, we created, and we told it what to do. The most clever computer programs so far were just repeating exactly the instructions we told them. As artificial intelligence starts to take over, they're going to make their own decisions. They're going to have their own value system. They're going to have their own emotions, if you want.
0: And that was Mo Gordat talking about his book, Solve for Happy. And that's all we have time for on this edition of Sunday Brunch, which was produced by Ben Ryland, studio managed by Sarah Miles. Our researcher was Helena Jureet. I'm Georgina Godwin. Have a lovely Sunday.